situation can always be worse. I personally feel like we don't realize the privilege sometimes that we uh, that we have to be the situation that we have and really understand that what you have is incredibly unique, incredibly special, and you need to make the best out of it. I think we all should be striving to be better, right? But I think it's really hard to get better. It's really hard to move forward if you don't appreciate how far you have, how far you have gone. Everyone is a stranger until you know their story. The Power of Good Intentions is a show about people, their stories, challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. This show is here to remind you that there is always a path forward and that good things happen to people who have a good heart. I am Aliou Sidibe, and I am your host. Hey, it's Aliou, and I just have a quick announcement before we start. So... I mentioned to you guys about a month ago that I wanted to start a YouTube channel where I would post videos of the interviews. So I finally launched it this week. So if you get a chance, please go on YouTube and look for TPOGI or The Power of Good Intentions and or look for my name, Ali UCDB, and you will find little snippets of the interviews uh, from the podcast. Thank you again for listening and I hope that you are doing well and taking care of yourself. In 1989, the social-political climate in Ivory Coast was getting worse. There were pro-democratic protests that eventually led to schools being closed down. It is in this environment that David's parents decided to send him and his sisters out of the country for a better future. He was only 14 years old and did not quite understand what was going on at first. He landed in France for the first time in 1989 and, of course, with being in a new country, he had to face many challenges such as adjusting to the culture, making friends, and being away from everything he had ever known. He did not really let this stop him though. He stayed true to what later on became his life motto. For him, it doesn't really matter how you got to where you are, but what truly matters is what you make out of the situation you are handed. In today's episode, we got a chance to talk about his journey from leaving his hometown at 14 to today becoming the innovation leader for one of the largest professional services firm in the world. We talked about everything from his core values, the leaders he looked up to growing up, and parenting in the age of technology and social media. David, thank you so much for being with me today on the podcast. My pleasure. I would like to first, you know, ask you, what was a typical day like in your household growing up in Cote d'Ivoire? And how do you think that shaped you early on? Well, I mean, obviously, as a, as a kid, your day is, is, um, goes with, uh, with a school schedule. And... Um, Having both of my parents working, one of them would typically drop me off uh, at school uh, early in the morning. Uh, the day, the school days in Eric Coast are pretty long. Um, 
think we ended the day at four or five o'clock. So come back, get your, uh, come back, shower, do your homework, eat, and repeat until uh, until the weekend. The weekends were a lot more exciting, and <laughs> um, the weekend really were quite different from what people maybe used here. Uh, we had a lot more um, autonomy, a lot more independence. Um, I feel like after homework and um, and things like that, I had complete freedom to just go out and meet up with a couple of friends and um, and uh, and hang out and do all sorts of things, whether it's playing soccer, walking around, riding a bicycle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was fairly um, it was fairly autonomous, uh, very little adult supervision, and I think it uh, it's really centered around your your social, your friends, uh, your friend schedule on the weekends. So you were surrounded by your family, your friends. And mm-hmm. one, one thing I wonder is when you were, you know, back in Cody War growing up, mm-hmm. yeah. did you envision, uh, did you know that you were going to leave the country or did you think that you were going to grow up there and stay there? I, I had absolutely uh, no idea. So first of all, I left, uh, I, I left the country when I was 14 years old. Uh, mm-hmm. on my way to high school. So before that, I really had no inclination. Um, so the, the the short answer is no. Uh, did I want to leave? Uh, I suppose because back then, and even now, I assume going to Europe was uh, was a big deal and was something that was very <laughs> exciting. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure I, I wanted to go, but I had no idea that I would eventually go to so when you left at 14 year old, did, did your entire family live with you or how did it work? What was the transition like? Yeah. So what happened is, um, no, so it was, so maybe a little bit of background. I have four siblings. Mm-hmm. I have uh, two older sisters who are two and four years older than me and two younger brothers who are much younger than I am. So I grew up really with my two older sisters and we were the kind of pack and then followed by the two little ones uh, mm-hmm. way, 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 way back. So when I went to France, I went with my two older sisters. Uh, as I told you, I went, uh, I started high school in France, mm-hmm. first year of high school. My, um, my, uh, and my two older sisters were, were um, a year ahead of me and, uh, and in terminal, a uh, senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really the the three of us who uh, who ended up being in France for that first year, um, and really after after I think two or three weeks of my mom coming with us to get us settled and um, get things sorted out, that was it. That was uh, <laughs> that was the three of us. <laughs> so why were you sent to France, by the way? Excuse me. Why were you sent to France? Is there a reason why uh, you and your oh. sisters left? Was it just for school? Uh, so it, it, it's funny because um, initially I didn't quite know, but as it happened, the um, the social political climate of the Ericos was deteriorating pretty rapidly um, right around that time. Uh, the country was really going through a number of uh, pro-democracy protests back then. And that was, by the way, that was back in 1989, I think. 
Mm. And um, for 30 euros, we had pretty much a, uh, um, a one-party system. And um, pro-democracy uh, protests uh, erupted in the, I think, 88, uh, 88 or 87. And it, it really led the country to... Um, and by the way, those protests were led by the... Like many movements in in Africa, but also in in Europe, were led by the uh, by the students uh, and uh, okay. and the intelligence, the professors, and so on. So I think that's I suppose those movements, those increasing disruption that uh, led my parents to decide to send us uh, back, uh, send us to France. I think those parents who could afford did that, whether send their kids to France or some other countries that were a little more stable. And it, as it happened, it was a very, very good decision because the very first year that I went to, that I went to France, uh, school was completely, uh, the, the system came to a halt in Ivory Coast and school ended up being completely canceled nationwide for the entire wow. country. So everybody has to, had to uh, do over uh, the following year. So it was actually an incredibly timing for us. And I'm trying to put myself in your shoes when you're 14 yeah. year old and living in the country. So mm-hmm. now with time, you're able to see that it was kind of a blessing in disguise. But when you were 14 and you have to leave your parents and you have to mm-hmm. leave your hometown and your country and you find yourself in a place where I, I'm assuming you didn't know anyone in France in that school where you went. No. Completely. Okay. So you find <laughs> yourself, you know, being like a, a, the new person on the block and you yep. left everything behind. How did you feel, you know, at that time facing that uh, transition in your life? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a good question and, and, and an interesting question because on, on one hand, it was challenging, as you can imagine, because uh, as you said, uh, there was really... Uh, we didn't really know anybody. I mean, as far as we, as far as I know, I could have landed in Mars, right? <laughs> um, we uh, obviously, uh, obviously, the transition wasn't as bad as it could be because the Ivorian school system was really built um, on the basis of the French school system. So. School system is very different, and the classes were equivalent. So mm-hmm. I went from troisième, which I think is, uh, was it eighth nine. grade or ninth grade here? Nine tenth grade. grade. Yeah, to, to second. And uh, the transition was really straightforward uh, with the challenges of, of, you know, different school and, and, uh, and different country. But mm-hmm. the Ivory Coast is also a French-speaking country, so there was not a, a challenge of language, but there was clearly a challenge of culture. Um, back then, um, you know, late 80s, uh, early 90s, um, I think I was the only, m- me and my sisters were the only black kids in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the school. Uh, now the society, of course, is, is a lot more uh, multi, um, uh, uh, multiracial, but back then it, was, uh, it, it wasn't the case. And um, so I think we had to, to adapt to that. So there was all of these challenges uh, that we had to deal with. It was also the challenge of the cold. This was my very first winter, and, uh, and I had to say uh, I never forgot that. Um, but um, the other course being uh, being a balmy seventy five degrees year round. Uh, but on the other hand, it was something that was exciting about it. Uh, one because as I as I said for. For Ivory Coast, uh, Western Europe, 
or, or the U.S. for that matter, were very appealing. I think we were attracted by the culture, by modernism. You know, it was a developed country uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to a developing country as the other coast was. So it was a mix of, um, of, of excitement that I think that we had to balance out with, uh, with the challenges of, uh, of, of being out there on our own. Uh, I, I would say, I would say, however, that um, ultimately, I, I think if I if I were to think, you know, was I more concerned or anxious than than excited? I would, I think, I would probably say I would go back and forth. Um, okay. You know, depending on the situation, the time of the year, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very interesting and, and mixed set of feelings. Did you feel kind of accepted in that new community you were kind of joining? And also, were you afraid for your parents who stayed back home? Because you said there were like political <laughs> movements going up. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe your last question first. I mm-hmm. wasn't really concerned about my parents uh, going back home because. Society didn't really turn violent. It, it was really a lot of unrest, a lot of protests uh, in the okay. streets and and so on. But um, it, it wasn't really a uh, it wasn't really violence in the street that came actually much later, which we can talk about if you want. So that, that that's that. In terms of the community, we quickly found a local as it as it is always the case actually we quickly found a local community of uh of students of african students being in similar situations or having been in the situation for a couple of years before us so we found ourselves really kind of joining that community so to speak and i think it i think it it probably eased a little bit um the transition because people similar to you having the same background have gone through that one two three years uh one two three years prior to prior to you so that was really helpful to um uh to 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 join that that group um we did made uh actually a lot of really good french uh friends as well uh, Mm -hmm. some of which i'm still very close to um so i felt like i was able to really build a connection on, um, on, on both fronts, which, which, was, uh, which was good. Um, with all the stories and all the challenges that you, you can imagine with, you know, maybe some group of people not being accepting of African immigrants and so on, uh, yeah. for the vast majority, it was fairly positive with respect to the French locals that we, that we, uh, that we knew uh, our landlords, uh, who were almost surrogate parents uh, for us, and they were very, very helpful and very protective, and that was that was really, really good. Great, uh, I love it. I love the positive outlook you have on on the experience. So, uh, at fourteen, this happens, and mm-hmm. then so you go to high school there. What happens for you next after do you go to university in France? Do you move somewhere else? What happened? Uh, so after three years of high school, uh, mm-hmm. I, after the baccalaureate, which concludes your, your high school, uh, I went to engineering school and I stayed in France. Uh, it was the logical pathway. Things were still pretty, uh, pretty challenging in, uh, in Ivory Coast. And so I stayed in France for, uh, uh, for, uh, um, 
for my uh, for my engineering studies, uh, which okay. consisted of a it was a five year um, uh, degree, two years of class paper and three years of engineering school, and I was lucky enough to spend my last year of engineering school as an exchange student in um, in Prescott, Arizona, where um, to I think we had this opportunity. I jumped on it and I was able to. I was accepted, and I got the the pleasure to 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 spend a year in Arizona and before going back to France and and graduate. One thing I would like to to ask you is, mm-hmm. so today you are the innovation leader of one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the biggest accounting firm in the world, and uh-huh. I'm sure that it wasn't an easy path to get there. But if you could go back in time and speak to that 14 year old who was you know at that time leaving his hometown for a new country and kind of going to a known world what would you tell that kid and also one thing i realized whenever you talk you're saying uh i was lucky or we're mm-hmm. blessed with and you, you you have a positive outlook on things and i think you know most people are Thank not you. like that where every single experience in your life you're kind of grateful for it so how did you evolve to get to that mindset and what would you tell that kid uh, if you were to go back in time? <laughs> uh, really interesting question. Um, I don't realize actually that uh, uh, that I say that a lot, but perhaps <laughs> I think you must be right, obviously. I'm sure it's a really good observation. Look, I, I, I don't know. I, I, whether I develop that positive outlook or whether um, it's something that I've always had, I, I really am convinced that situation can always be worse, Wh- whatever you are. And myself, yourself, and many others are incredibly privileged to be in the situation that we're in, whatever the situation is. Of mm-hmm. course, things could, things could be better. Uh, but, you know, whether it's now living in, New York City, living in the U.S., working, as you said, for one of the largest um, uh, professional services firm in the world, um, you completing your education in one of the best schools in the world, uh, etc. cetera. I, I personally feel like we don't realize the privilege sometimes that we, uh, that we have to be the situation that we have. And one of the things that I that I <laughs> that I try to remind my kids is to really understand that what you have is incredibly unique, incredibly special, and you need to make the best out of it. I'm really um, uh, I'm really unhappy when I hear the doom and gloom and things are people complaining all the time. They complain about anything. They complain about where they live. They complain about their work, <laughs> their job, their friends, their boyfriends, <laughs> whatever it is. And it's like, I, how dare you get to complain? Just, just walk, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in my, I'm working from home today, sitting in my apartment in, in Manhattan, right? Just walk mm-hmm. 20 blocks up and you'll see people who have the right to complain, right? So yeah. I, I personally feel like 
um, it's really, really important to make the best out of what you have and to keep that positive outlook so you can even improve if you feel like there is improvement that could be made. And we all need to improve uh, certain things here and there. So I think that's really the way I that's really the way I see things, and that's what I try to impress on my on my kids. So you uh, will say that the other part of your question. So you will say that it is all about having perspective on where you are in your oh. life. As oh, abs- uh, abs- absolutely. And clearly, I think we all should be striving to be better, right? But I think it's really hard to get better. It's really hard to move forward if you don't appreciate how far you have, how far you have gone, right? Yeah, yeah. How if you don't appreciate the the basis for that future success that you're currently benefiting, and I think that's really, really, uh, really, really important. Um, Oh. Your um, my your second, other question was around the advice that I would have yeah. to my younger self. Yeah. Um, so it's um, funny enough, I, I haven't spent enough time thinking through that because as I said, I, I always, I, I tend not to look back and I always tend to figure out how do I go from where I am today, irrespective of how I got there, or what could have been the, what could have been different? So I don't mm. tend to think through that. But uh, here's a few things that uh, perhaps uh, I would tell the younger the younger David. Um, one, I would say, I think it's really really important to be more open to different types of experiences. And let me explain to you what I mean by that, right? Back then, back then I was very focused, of course, on my studies. And I saw success as really a linear path or something that can only achieve through one types of experiences, in this case, studying, right, school which of mm-hmm. course is very, very important. But studying alone, right, being book smart is not the only way to really develop oneself, right? There are a multitude of experiences that one can accomplish that are going to really make a difference in terms of the opportunity that you're going to get access to, the people that you're going to meet, or even the type of personality and knowledge and character that you're going to develop right? It's not just about getting good grade at school. It's about meeting different people and seeking out different types of experiences. I'll give you a good example. Like back then, the idea of a gap year Mm -hmm. was, first of all, it wasn't very popular with my friends. But second of all, I would have laughed if one person had (laughs) told me that, hey, you know what, why don't you take a gap year and kind of see the world and, you know, and then come back and do your studies. I would be like, absolutely not. You know, (laughs) you're done with high school, you go to college. When you're done with college, you get a job as soon as possible and that's it. And, (laughs) but now, you know, I I met, I was on vacation two weeks ago and I met a couple of kids who were on their gap year, right? Mm -hmm. And it was amazing the type of experience that they were getting, the type of people they were meeting, the, uh, the countries they were visiting, the different jobs that they were doing, 
And all these experiences were really, I think, are going to shape the professional, the person, the the men or women that these people are going to be in the future. And mm-hmm. I think I think I tended to discount those type of um, uh, those type of experiences. So if I if I were to look back, I would probably have encouraged myself to seek out more of those opportunities. But at the same time, again, I hate doing that because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for exactly the very <laughs> said, the very path that I took. And yeah. perhaps I had, had I taken a a gap year, I would be a beach bum somewhere in uh, <laughs> you know in California or south of France and not accomplish anything. So who knows what could have happened? Actually, most likely, I would have been a a um, uh, maybe a twenty year old veteran snowboard instructor somewhere in the <laughs> station. That uh, that might have happened if I had taken a gap year. So maybe it's a good thing I didn't. Are you, are you a big fan of snowboarding? I'm a huge snowboarder, I, uh, <laughs> okay. which is very unusual for a uh, for a kid growing, who grew up in the in the Arctic coast because we don't have mountain <laughs> and it's we don't we don't have snow uh, out there. But uh, I discovered snowboarding when I was in college, and um, and I've been snowboarding uh, religiously ever since. So that's <laughs> been maybe now 25 I years mean, or so. You never know. Maybe even if you had taken a gap year, you will still be where you are today. Who knows? But Okay. Exactly. It's really it's a it's a, it's an interesting kind of uh, intellectual uh, thoughts to have, but I try yeah. not to think too much about it. <laughs> you know, one thing I, I love is the fact that you brought up your kid because I have a very uh, important question for you in regards to that. So you are both mm-hmm. the innovation leader uh, at mm-hmm. EY, and you're also yeah. you know a father of two sons. And I wanted to to uh, understand your perspective on parenting in the age of technology because, and let me mm. elaborate because I always have this conversation with my sister who also has like two daughters. And mm. so, you know, we live in an age where your kids will grow in a world that is way different than your world and way different than even my world. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's a challenging situation where technology can bring good to people's lives, but it can also bring bad things. And by bad things, I mean, you know, people on social media who are having depression just because, you know, they constantly compare their lives to other people's lives. And they, and you have social media being used as a tool sometimes to divide communities. So how do you approach and what do you tell your sons uh, when they are growing up in a world like this to kind of be as positive as you? Because I always have this conversation with my friends, you know, it's like, your social media can make, people turn negative and obviously yeah. you know i'm a big believer in the power of good intentions reason why i'm doing this podcast and all that yeah but what what do you tell your kids to not fall in the trap of you know the, the dark side of social media mm, no that's uh it's a really really interesting topic and frankly something that um my wife and i talk about all the time as you can imagine uh my, I have two sons, as you said, uh, they are 11 and 9, so still on the early, on the young-ish uh, side. Um, I'll give you the short version, but uh, first of all, so the, the short answer is they are not 
that into social media yet. Um, it's probably a little bit different for boys and girls. I have two boys and uh, in my experience, at least my boys and the boys around them are not that much into social media. They're very much into gaming. So we can talk about that a little bit. But social media is not, it's not very uh, prevalent. Um, okay. So it's funny because it's ironic. Um, I'm, I'm a computer engineer, love computer, loved it all my life, um, innovation leader for uh, FS. Um, we try to be, um, we are almost in a dark age at home when it comes to uh, technology and computers. <laughs> uh, we, for the kids, we have no screen time during the week. And we try to limit that because of that dark aspect of it. And mm -hmm. that's how we started. But honestly, we have evolved a little bit because completely blocking them off and not exposing them to gaming and electronic and getting online and do whatever they do online, etc. Not exposing to that is going to be ultimately, I think it's going to hurt them in the long term because they're not going to develop the ability to to really um, um, know how to handle all the bad stuff that could happen on those on those media, right? Mm. So we're evolving. It's a little bit like uh, immunization. If you raise a kid in an environment that's completely pristine and nothing is dirty and so on, they don't develop the immune system to uh, to deal with that. So I yeah. think we're taking now the same approach with social media, we, uh, we and, and electronic in general. Mm -hmm. We want them to have access to it, but we do it very gradually. We we talk a lot about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And ultimately, what I try to do with them is to let them know that, look, it's fundamentally what kids are doing today on social media or on gaming platform is not different from what we used to do 30 years ago. We were talking about how mm. I occupied my days, you know, back in every, growing up in the Arab Coast. It wasn't very different from what my kids are doing today, but we use a different medium. Back then, I had to go out and find some friends, good friends or kids that you would kind of meet up and you would try to engage into some sort of ritualistic boy, you know, type of activity, whether it's playing <laughs> soccer or whether it's, you know, cops and robbers, whether it's doing racing, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what kids are doing today. They go online, they, they go to these uh, gaming platform and they find people to play with and they interact and they compete and they do some games and so on and so forth. Mm, the only difference yeah. is the physical activity and the reach. It's a mm -hmm. little bit, you reach out a lot more with social media, but ultimately what we do now and what we do fundamentally 30 years ago mm -hmm. is no different. So what I try to tell them is what I would tell what my parents told me back then, which is you have to be respectful. You have to, you, you know, you have to be respectful. You have to be polite. You have to understand, you know, that kind of group mentality and bully. we use bullying a lot. We probably use different terms back then, but ganging up on the weakest of the group and laughing mm -hmm. and making fun of someone, all of these things you have to be, you have to be aware of and you really have to shape 
your kids' understanding on how this different um, behavior can impact um, the group or the individual if they're directed at one particular member of, of the group. So honestly, I try to really keep that perspective that there's nothing really new under the sun, but realizing that the rich is, is a little bit different, it's a little more amplified, amplified these days. Got, got it, got it. Uh, I like your analogy on like how it wasn't, it's not really that different from 30 years ago. I didn't really look at it this way. It's basically the same activities just with new tools. It, it, it's really the same activity and new tools. It's, and it, it's really interesting. Again, I, I, have, I have boys. Mm-hmm. And w- what do we do as boys, right? When we're 8, 10, 12 years old, right? Mm. Yeah, we engage in those rituals, right? We, and very early on, very naturally, you kind of, there is a hierarchy seeking where someone is going to develop as a leader of the group, right? And yeah. you have different people that behave differently. Boys love to engage in competition, whether we would engage into racing in the street or playing soccer or see who's going to win and so on. That's exactly <laughs> what these kids are doing today. So yeah. all of that is really moderated differently, but fundamentally things are not changing. And we're having those conversations about what you do, how you behave about temptation. Mm-hmm. Yesterday with my boy, we were, my older boy, we were talking about, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, we're talking about drinking and vaping and pot and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And <laughs> things are, these are the same issue that, that come up over and over. All of these things are about what's forbidden, what you yeah. can do. It's about testing boundaries and so on. But I really believe that you have to be open. Kids are going to be doing those things, whether or not you talk about it, whether or not you like it. They're yeah. going to talk about pot. They're going to talk about doing illegal stuff. And talk about doing stupid stuff. So I'd rather engage and I'd rather them understand clearly what we think is acceptable, what we don't condone, mm-hmm. what we think, you know what, most likely you're going to try this stupid thing and I want to know about it if you find yourself in a really, really difficult situation. I'd rather have those dialogues than kind of like, you're not going to go on social media. You're not going to have access to this or you, you, like this. I don't think is very helpful. It wasn't helpful back then. I don't think yeah. it's helpful today. Yeah, I agree. I love it. I love, I love your perspective on it. Um, I, I would like to now uh, switch gears to kind of understand some of the people and leaders you looked up to when you were growing up. And also, <laughs> who are some of the people you are most grateful for? Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. So it sounds a little bit of a cliche, but I'm going to start with the cliches, which which <laughs> are my parents, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like they had um, they had they had very different personalities and different impact. And I, I, I thought about it recently for a number of different reasons, but with my dad, I really got that sense of independence that I reflecting on seeing him growing up and uh, even seeing, seeing him now, he's an entrepreneur, he's a 
um, he's someone who has really always tried to achieve more over his career. First of all, first as an executive in a large multinational in Aritost, and then living that and building his uh, and building his own um, his own company. So that independence and that drive to achieve more is something that I think has had a huge influence on me. Um, I've also really, really and, um, appreciated, and you, you will appreciate that uh, yourself, but my dad is someone who is, who was, and who still is equally comfortable in you know evolving in a multinational environment with dealing with only western westerners as colleagues and and superiors and 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 whatnot or, or employees but equally comfortable kind of dropping all of that and almost adopting a different personality when he goes to the village for example in a very <laughs> traditional uh, Ivorian in Ivorian setting, right? <laughs> Where yeah. uh, you speak a different language, the culture is very different, how you behave is very different, and it was almost a, 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 a split personality. But he was able to really not only kind of be comfortable evolving in two different environments, but you know, but but also he was comfortable and he was genuinely um he was genuinely comfortable in both environments it wasn't an act he was he's really good going you know being in a five-star restaurant talking about art and fine wine and business <laughs> and then the same guy would turn around in a village dressed up in traditional traditional uh, ivorian clothes speaking the local language and eating eating the, the local food with his fingers and so on. And <laughs> I, I found that was incredibly brilliant. So being comfortable with diff, in different environments, in different cultures, mm -hmm. and not feeling, uh, not having an inferiority or superiority complex in mm -hmm. both environments is something that I think has tremendously uh, influenced me and helped me myself as I went from the Ivory Coast to France to the US and dealing with different cultures and different people and so on and so forth. Mm. Mm. Uh, my mom is um, my mom was always my mom always had this warmth and my mom was more the talkers. I was talking about how we were talking about our kids like our kids need to know how we feel what we want and so on. My mom was the one was the one on like discipline and this is i don't want you to do that or like you need to be aware of that so she was one well with my dad I, I was i don't know whether i can whether it makes sense but my dad it was almost almost like observing him with my mm -hmm. mom it was a lot more interaction and okay. i really enjoyed the the guidance and how close she was to all of us and how like how maternal obviously she was with with all of us and, and the mm -hmm. guidance was 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 tremendous and i really tried to emulate that myself in um, in in raising our kids 
Um, professionally, if I can, if I can pivot a little bit, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a few folks at EY, and I've been at EY for almost twenty years. There were a few folks at EY who were incredibly critical, pivotal in my own success. Um, I don't know whether you want me to name them, but it's completely uh, well, up to you. Oh, okay. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, one that I would highlight is Ed Pazani. So Ed Pazani is the the managing partner who hired me 20 years ago, who took a chance on me, right? Mm-hmm. I was this kid who could barely, who spoke English in a funny accent and was <laughs> still adjusting to the U.S. society and so on. Um, but not only he took a chance on us, but what I took the most out of him was the people aspect, like how how much he put people first into everything that he did. Whether it was business strategy for the practice, whether it was uh, determining how we're going to organize the team, whether it was promotion, whether it was DNI, he really, for him, it was people first, business, you know, business second. And actually, actually, it's not the right way to say that because I truly think that by putting the people first, whether it's people in your teams, in your practice, in your school project or whatever, by putting those people first, mm-hmm. that's an integral part of actually getting things done. It's not, I need to do the people stuff because it's, uh, it's a nice thing to do. I need yeah. to put people first because they're going to help you achieve more back to that goal-oriented piece. They're going to help you achieve more by giving you the best that they got. And I, I learned that very early on by seeing his demeanor and how he approached building teams and rewarding people, interacting with people. And that to me has made a, a significant difference in how I shaped to be a, a professional and a partner and a leader in this world. Okay. I love it. I love it. So one uh, last question that I would like to ask you is, yeah. so when you're sitting, you know, uh, when you're 80 year olds, looking back at your life i know you mentioned you don't like looking back but uh, 80 years old you know maybe sitting in ivory coast maybe here in new york maybe in france or maybe in the mountain you know snowboarding at 80 years no, old. no that's right yeah that 80 year old instructor <laughs> what what will make you say that your life was successful and that can be both you know for your personal life or maybe your yeah. professional career also one thing that i wanted to ask you about was your foundation leah that you uh, co-founded when it, if you could maybe expand on that in this question, but yeah, what will make you say that David, your life was successful? Yep, no, that's that's perfect. And so on, on that, and, and honestly, I don't think it's a question that you answer by separating. Okay, on the personal front, I hope that I have achieved X, Y, Z. And on the <laughs> professional front, I hope that I have achieved you know A, B, C. I actually yeah. think. Looking back, a measure of success is really how you would have blended the two successfully. That's, and I really, really believe that. And the way I I like to illustrate that is I always, in my mind, I have that analogy of three concentric circle in terms of, you know, in terms of success. Mm. 
and and first of all, to me, success is going to be measured by how impactful you are on people's lives at the end of the day. Hmm. I mean, we can, you can accumulate as much money as you want. You can do as many exciting adventures as you want. But ultimately, I think success is truly fundamentally measured by how impactful you are on people's lives. And so back to my three concentric circle analogy, I think um, I'm going to measure success on on how much impact I have on people in these three circles. And here's how the three circles work. In the inner circle, you have your immediate family. My wife, my two boys, my siblings, my parents. I'm African, so for us, immediate family means it's, it's a lot broader <laughs> than here, right? Yeah. But that's, that's a core immediate family. How am I going to look back and see that I've had an impact on, on all these people. Whether it's inspiring my nephew, my nephew is going to graduate from high school and I want to be an inspiration for him. I want to guide him into his years in college and his career, right? I want my kid to look back and say, my God, like dad was there for us and we learned so much and we developed into men thanks to dad. And I want to be a good husband, et cetera. So that's the first circle. The second circle is friends and colleagues. Not quite the close family, but people that really good friends, really good colleagues. How am I by what I achieve at work, what I achieve at home, having adventure with some good friends and so on? How am I going to impact them, right? Mm. And then lastly, the, the circle outside is the people that you don't know and, frankly, that you'll never meet. And, and frankly, a measure of a life well-lived is if you're able to impact even the people in that third circle, right? Think about all the leaders and all the scientists and you know everybody whose whose name we know martin luther king and steve jobs and einstein and others these are people through their work have impacted countless number of people that they'll never know that they'll never meet so we all should feel lucky to really impact people across across these three circles if we go back to the foundation, Leah, for example, mm-hmm. um, Leah, Leah Mary is my, my sister's daughter. She has a condition called uh, sickle cell anemia, mm-hmm. which, is a very, uh, which is a blood disease, uh, a, a genetic blood disease that's, uh, that's incredibly debilitating for kids who have that. And it's predominantly impacting African and, and, and um and black people in, in America, black people in general, whether it's in Africa or in America. So mm-hmm. one thing that we did a few years ago is really build uh, or start that foundation with my siblings to help educate and help those who are impacted by this by this disease and put resources that we have available. Again, I'm going to go back. We all have been 
very lucky to to be where we are to have the resources that we have so how mm -hmm. can we put these resources um uh, at play to support those who are impacted by this disease such as my my niece who of course is benefiting from all of us but there are a lot there are countless people like her who have that that issue that don't have parents with the same level of resources and uh, and uh, and knowledge and education so that was really the uh, uh, the impetus behind uh, creating this foundation. So that foundation is a, is an example of look, we need to impact other people that are beyond us, even though we're never going to meet them. So that's yeah. that's kind of how it fits into my my bigger my bigger picture. I love it. I love it. And I, I love this three circle uh, uh, analogy that you have. I think it's very important for sure to so like be a family man, obviously, you know, take care of your people, your family, uh, and then your friends who can also be part of your extended family. But I think, yeah, like you say, the, the real value of someone's life is really in how, how you impact those people who are better off because of you, although you've never met them. And with that, David, I would like to... Thank you for your time. Thank you for everything that you do, not only at EY, but also for the broader community. It was my honor to interview you and my pleasure to hear your story. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure, Aliu. I really, um, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. I really want to commend you for uh, for doing this podcast. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think I I love the idea, the power of good intention. I, I love what you're trying to accomplish, and I was uh, I was very really excited to be part of it. Thank good you. Good luck with the rest of with the podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, last thing for you, if anyone in the audience wants to get in touch with you, what is the best way to contact you? Uh, I think. <laughs> On social media, we're talking about it. Um, <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn and um, and Twitter. I think it's just easier to uh, LinkedIn, on Twitter. I'm at uh, dkm uh, underscore nyc, and on LinkedIn, just search for David Cadio Morocco, and um, you will find me. Sounds and good. I'm happy to engage on any of these platforms. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you again, David. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you have a question about a previous episode or if you would like to share something positive, I would really, really love to hear from you. So you can go to speakpipe.com slash T-P-O-G-I. That is S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot -E com slash T-P-O-G-I. You can find more about the show at thepowerofgoodintentions.podbean.com or on Instagram, on my page, Billionaires Mind Club. Thank you very much.